the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. president who our president is it may be several more weeks i mean in milwaukee they got major problems right now i mean you've got uh, an area in uh, milwaukee that they are saying that they've got uh, you know it after you counted a hundred percent of the votes uh, there was a hundred and one percent of the vote there's an extra 1%. Let me tell you what, 1% when you got a large area like that skews numbers big time. And I think they need to get over there uh, in the county where uh, Madison is at and check that out closely and make sure that everybody that is voting is registered to vote. I don't know if I believe that. We've got people here in the state of Arkansas that is giving um, – false information one of them was a a candidate for congressional district saying that she thought that her election basically was stolen from her folks she lost by 10 points and she's saying that uh, the votes in pulaski county were suppressed it's such an exam uh, uh, a way that uh, could keep uh, her from winning Well, let's go back and remember election night and the election commission in Pulaski County uh, discounted 4,000 votes. Well, 4,000 votes wouldn't have won the election for Joyce Elliott. Wouldn't even have come close. Look, I got J.R. Davis. He's already here for the Gilmore Group. Uh, I think that Seth is back. I think he got his coffee. He's ready to go. Now, are you doing coffee or are you just doing straight shots of espresso this morning, uh, Seth, I I went to straight to some of the bubbly. I've got a sprite in front of oh, me. Oh, okay, all right. So, Jr., let's start well, with let, let's start with you. I mean, you were very closely uh, aligned and working hard with the Gilmore Group for uh, Congressman uh, French Hill. Now you got Joyce Elliott saying, "Hey, uh, we think that maybe." This uh, this uh, election was stolen because the votes in Pulaski County have been uh, suppressed. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think that uh, the Elliott campaign, I mean, this is what happened, Dave. Um, we went into election night. I think we all felt good about uh, Congressman Hill's prospects uh, for reelection. Um, you know, nothing on our, you know, nothing from our data showed uh, a pathway uh, to victory for for Joyce, uh, we thought it'd be a little closer than it turned out. 
but at the end of the day, we had uh, we had pretty stellar turnout, um, and it was a lot of Republicans who turned out. I think a lot of Trump supporters uh, that really helped push Congressman Hill across the finish line, and I also think his message uh, over the last two weeks really just came home. Um, and and uh, you know, voters in the outlying counties, and even Pulaski, which he won day of uh, election votes. Um, th- those who came out on election day and voted. And so it was just an overall really great uh, night for the congressman. The Elliott campaign, I think, quite frankly, is just a little, uh, you know, butthurt uh, that it wasn't any closer uh, than it was. I think I don't know if they, they thought they would actually be able to win it, um, but I think they thought it would be really super close enough um, where it would sort of uh, – you know, create some ripple effects uh, for future cycles. And what happened was, you know, uh, uh, she lost by, you know, nearly twice as much as, as the last Democratic candidate um, in 2018. And I think what you saw yesterday was just a lot of, you know, excuse making. And I look, I agree. I look, you should be able to count all the votes. Like, look at them, make sure they count. But it doesn't matter at this point. And when you're talking about 32,000 plus votes, it doesn't matter. Um, and, uh, you know, French Hill won that race outright uh, for the right reasons. Um, and I think it was a poor taste, in my opinion, from the Elliott campaign, not just to concede the election when they knew it was over, but to turn it into something else that questions the integrity of our democracy here uh, in AR2. And I think that's what uh, that's what's sad about it. It's just the, the uh, putting all that into question just simply because you're upset you lost. Well, weeks ago, weeks ago, I was questioning the election integrity in Pulaski County because, uh, you know, people that were on the uh, election commission were saying that they were checking ballots, uh, mail-in ballots, and uh, were saying this ballot's okay and it didn't have a signature and whatever. And I'm thinking, how can you do that? That that's yeah. that's law. And that, you know, I'm wondering if some of that 4,000, that's exactly what they they finally said, well, we don't want a lawsuit. So that and, and it, they knew that those 4,000 votes weren't going to be the, 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 you know, the hammer that they could swing uh, to, to put the election on. And so then they they said, well, we won't count those those ballots. Yeah, I mean, look, we, you and I, we've had this conversation, uh, uh, that exact same conversation before uh, the election. There was some concern there. But, you know, my whole point is, look, you know, absolutely, uh, you know, in, a, in an election like this, every election, um, the process should be held accountable. Those involved in the process should be held accountable. But when you go out and you hold a news conference at 1230 the day after the election, to basically complain about how the Hill campaign, uh, you know, campaigned, right, one, and then you turn around and say, uh, well, you know, uh, I'm not sure all the votes have been counted here in Pulaski County, um, and I think that, you know, there's a chance that this election's been stolen and people have been disenfranchised from voting and everything's be It's just excuse after excuse after excuse. Um, and that's what's sad about it is that you, instead of just saying, look, and, and look, she ran a great race. It was a good race on uh, the Elliott campaign side. She did better than she did 10 years ago. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it, this is a Republican stronghold. And I think we cemented that 
uh, Tuesday night. And, uh, and I think we did everything we absolutely needed to do to win. And I think by winning it uh, by the margin that we did, Dave, the DCCC and every Democrat group in the future is going to think twice before they try to inject, you know, uh, uh, millions more dollars into a race like this in the future, which is great for Republicans. Well, DNC put up some big, big dollars. How do we know? Yeah. Do we know exactly how much money she spent? Well over a hundred million dollars, wasn't it? Uh, I don't know if uh, you know Seth has seen some numbers. I know at one point we were sitting here at seven plus uh, million dollars on both sides, as okay. far as raised and uh, uh, and infused. It may have gotten closer to eight million. Um, but I mean, if we're talking about a, a congressional seat, a congressional yeah. seat in Arkansas, eight you know seven to eight million dollars. Everybody saw the ads that were on TV, um, you know, and really down the stretch those last two weeks, we had three positive ads running, uh, and then there were some third-party groups with some negative ads. But that's, you know, that was our focus down the stretch those two weeks. And I just think the message resonated. I think our voters came home, uh, and I think you just saw, you know, Seth, you, we were kind of uh, off and on uh, together uh, Tuesday night, and when we saw – I had a you know, Senator Jonathan Dismang text me uh, the earlies from White County, uh, and when I saw those numbers come in, that's when I knew uh, it was over and we were in for a really good evening. Okay, so what do you think about all of this, Seth? I mean, I mean, we've got we we had a good night in in Arkansas as far as uh, the election. You, you Ben won down south. Uh, Beckham won down south, uh, even though there were some Republicans, from what I'm seeing now, who were out, uh, you know, uh, campaigning for a Democrat, which still blows my mind. Uh, It's it just really kind of uh, crazy. We, we had a, an outstanding night. We picked up seats in the House. We picked up seats in the Senate. I mean, uh, here in Arkansas, things are good. Yeah, they are, absolutely. First, a point on Joyce Elliott. Listen, liberals can be good-hearted people. And I know, Dave, that you have in the past had respect for Senator Elliott. Yep. In this campaign, though, I, you know, obviously some of the lies that, that her campaign were putting out there about the congressman, I know, turned some people off that, like yourself, have worked with her in the past. I know she's been uh, uh, on the program in the past and, and been a very thoughtful advocate for her positions, but what we've seen from Joyce Elliott in the last 24 to 48 hours, um, I think is just inexcusable, to be honest with you. As you guys have both pointed out, the margin of victory wasn't even close to what is outstanding, but what Joyce Elliott did yesterday in that news conference was go down here in Pulaski County and accuse, not by name, but by clear insinuation, Evelyn Gomez and Christy Starr, Uh who have been on your program, I know. She referred to them as the minority in this county, which they are not. They (laughs) They are are part of the majority party, right? They make up the majority of the commission. That is not the minority. It is their job by law to oversee the elections. It is not Terry Hollingsworth. It is not Barry Hyde. It is not Joyce Elliott herself. It is their job to oversee these elections. The ballots can be turned in to the clerk's office. That's where they are turned into. And the clerk, Terry Hollingsworth, could have canvassed those. And if she got Dave Ellswick's absentee ballot and saw, oopsie, Dave left off his date of birth, 
her office could have contacted you to come back and to fill out that proper information and to provide proper documentation to do so. Her office did not do that. Now, that let, me have, let, me, let me have let me let me hold on sure. just a second. Not just could have, legally must have. They did right. not do Goodness. what they yep. were legally being held to do. I we talked about that a month and a half ago. And I raised hell about it, and we had Star yep. on talking about it, and she she raised not as badly as I did, but she <laughs> <laughs> she she said that there was there was shenanigans trying to go on. All she was trying to do is uphold the law. Right, exactly. And so this this is on the clerk, Terry Hollingsworth. Now, will Democrats in this county admit it? No, because she's the golden child, right? Whenever they elected her, they elected her for the purposes of helping them with elections. She did voter drives with Democratic State House candidates, where the Republicans in those same races here, the incumbents here in Pulaski County, were they invited to those voter drives sponsored by the county clerk? No, of course they weren't. So she's as partisan as they come, which we all are. It's just some of us will admit that we're partisans, and some have this veneer that they're not. And so, yeah, I think it was shameful what we saw from Joyce Elliott yesterday in that concession, and I'm using air quotes here. Listen, if French Hill had lost 55 to 45 percentage-wise by 30,000 votes, he would have called Senator Elliott on election night and conceded because that's who he is. Yes, And we saw who Joyce Elliott is. For all of the talk of her bipartisan work in the General Assembly, we've seen in this race who she is, somebody that can lose by wide margins and not be able to accept it. She did a a voter get-out-the-vote thing with Stacey Abrams the night before the election, and I guess there she got some lessons on how not to concede. So that to the side, (laughs) your main point about races in southeast Arkansas, right now between the Senate and the House, we stand to gain three to five seats. Five seats if we hold on to Representatives Sorvillo and Wing here in Pulaski County. They've got margins each of just at a, a, about 100 votes. And so, of course, as, as different votes are tabulated, we've got these 4,000 ballots um, w- which have been set aside as, as lacking uh, information. And so those will be processed uh, once again uh, today. And hopefully we'll move closer to an answer there. We we are prepared for recounts. I'll just tell you, in those two races and in one more, the the other one I think will be fine, Representative Carolyn Brown. I think we're going to be fine in, in those two, Sorvillo and Wing. We just have to prepare for anything. Uh, but, yes, Ben Gilmore, Senator-elect Gilmore, Senator-elect Charles Beckham from the Magnolia area, Representative-elect Howard Beatty, also uh-huh. down there from southeast Arkansas, and Mark McElroy from the most southeastern House district in the state of Arkansas. Chico County has a Republican representative for the first time since Reconstruction. Okay, hold, and your, hold, your, hold your thoughts. Sure. we got to get a break in. Come back and talk about this because we broke the blue wall down in the Delta. we got to talk about that. <laughs> we did. It's, it is 620 right now in the morning. It's the Dave Ellswick Show. Now we're starting to do the analysis of, of the election. And let me just tell my fellow Arkansans, you all did good. We all did good. If more Republicans had done what they're supposed to do in some of the, these uh, other states, uh, we'd be doing fantastic dances this morning. 621, we got a break. We'll come back with more here 
on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, back with you, Dave Ellswick Show. Uh, Seth Mays is here from the Arkansas GOP. He's their spokesman. You heard him on election night on my show talking about what they were expecting. We've got uh, J.R. Davis from the Gilmore Group. Uh, J.R. was a little bit more laid back about what he was looking at. You, he was being, he was being Mr. How do I put this? He didn't want to start gloating too early. But I think that you, I think you knew, Jr. That it, it, you know, French was going to win. It was just by how big the margin was going to be. I, I, well, I look, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and, and lie to either of you. One, because Seth was there and watched me uh, uh, basically nervous walk for, for a while on uh, election night. I, and we talked about this. I mean, again, I didn't feel <clears throat> I never felt she had a path to win. I think she had to do way too much. Yep. And I said this at the beginning of the night. I thought she had to get 90,000 plus votes. Uh, and be at around 63% of the vote. She got 98,000 votes uh, in Pulaski, but uh, French Hill overperformed in Pulaski and brought her. I mean, she was at 62, 63% um, early in the night. And then French Hill, the day of election votes came in. He won the county on day of election votes. It brought her percentage down. Uh, below 60%. She didn't get to about 98,000. And then just, it was a romp uh, in the surrounding counties. And like I said before, when I got a text from Senator Dismang of those early votes in White County, it was like 15,700 to 3,600. That's when you knew the romp was on um, because, you know, our voters in these surrounding counties did exactly what we needed them to do. And that was come home and vote Republican on election day. Um, and so at that point, you know, you start getting a little, uh, uh, you know, a little, little more laid back, a little more comfortable. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, it was it was a really good night. It was a great night across the state. I haven't, I got to call Ben and try to get him on tomorrow morning. I understand that Charles Beckham is going to be here in the city uh, later on this afternoon uh, through tomorrow because tomorrow is, am I right, Seth? That tomorrow is Republican orientation. Well, that will be determined uh, by the caucus, so I'm not sure exactly what date they have set for that for both uh, Ben and Charles. I will say that it will be uh, everybody together meeting for the caucus will be the largest the Republican caucus has ever been, finally <laughs> a supermajority in the state Senate. The map does not have a lot of blue on it if you're looking at a state Senate map any longer. Yeah, I mean, supermajority in the Senate and the supermajority over in the House how many of these uh, newly elected, well, I'm, I'm going to say right off the top of the bat, that Ben and Charles Beckham both are uh, solid conservatives, and uh, this the state is about ready to begin the swing that I thought would happen maybe just a little earlier than it's going to of moving into being a solid conservative uh, state with less taxation, smaller government, the things that uh, the Republican Party has always uh, stood for. But we had a lot of people who thought we couldn't do that just because if they did it, we wouldn't get votes. I People are ready. Everybody. I don't I don't care. The people who came over and went from blue to red, they're ready for a limited government here in the state of Arkansas. We'll, we'll talk more about that. i got to get to the news. Let's do the news, guys. And when we come back, we'll continue our uh, discussion here on the Dave Ellswick Show.
All right, 25 minutes until 7. J.R. Davis from the Gilmore Group is with us. Congratulations to J.R. and and his group for running a great campaign for some uh, different people that are out there, you know, with French Hill and others uh, that uh, got elected and are going to the either state house or the state senate. And then uh, Seth is with us today, too, Seth Mays. And I sent uh, Doyle a, um, a text right after most of the results were known uh, for Arkansas uh, with the big word boom. And I said uh, to Doyle, I said, way to go out with a bang. I mean, I, what he has done over the last 10 years is really amazing. Now, I know there's some people who say, hey, 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 you know, about Doyle. Well, here's what I'll tell you about Doyle. He did the necessary things to move the Republican Party from being a partial party uh, in the, the House and the Senate to being the supermajority party uh, in the House and in, in the Senate. And uh, he did the job as chairman he was supposed to do, and he did a great job. And he's been pretty doggone transparent, although now he's getting kind of quiet. He, I think because the election <laughs> is coming up in just a few weeks, uh, he's trying to stay out of the public eye a little bit. Uh, he's been in the public eye for a long time now, and uh, he's ready to move on to some new endeavors. Probably going to do some things that will help him as a, as a lawyer to make some money. He needs to make money. You don't make a lot of money as the chairman. So with that, with that said, uh, please pass that on to him, Seth, that I, sure? I, have, I have utmost uh, respect for what Doyle has done with the, uh, One the Republican point on that, Party. Dave here, if you don't mind. Sure. The Democrats stated three objectives here, the, the Democratic Party of Arkansas. They wanted to make Joe Biden president. They wanted to flip the second congressional district, and they wanted to defeat the GOP supermajority. They wanted to get us under 75 votes in the state house. Now, put aside the presidential because one state party isn't going to win a presidential election. Okay? Yeah, so but we did our we did our side. job. We did our job. We for did Trump. right, <laughs> right. Look at those other two. We've talked about the congressional race at length, so they did not accomplish that. Here, in, once again, in the State House, we're going to expand our number of seats, uh, which every time we do it, we just break records. We've never had as many Republicans elected as we will be sworn in in January. And if you look over Doyle's tenure as chairman, it's been up, up, and up. Uh-huh. And then last cycle, it was even Stephen. We lost two House seats, but we won two House seats, including, I would add, the chairman of the Democratic Party. <laughs> who was a state representative up in the Newport area. Yeah. So it, but it was even Stephen, zero across the board. So a lot of people, especially a couple streets over from me and this headquarters, the Doyle Dome, as it is known, uh, said that they were going to get us below 75 seats. And that, that did not happen. We once again expanded. The, the Republican curve had been up. It was flat two years ago. And then we went up once again. They were thinking we were cresting over. I know everybody loves saying the curve. But they thought they were coming over the other side of a curve, you know. Uh, but, but once again, we've added um, to our majorities. And Doyle Webb is a central part of candidate recruitment in, in a number of areas. But then also making sure that everybody has the maximal number of resources from the state party and the democratic party just can't afford a lot of those resources for their candidates well they got to pay bills first they haven't done that yep 
they got some they yep. got some major issues, and we can talk about that here in a minute. Because in two years, we got a gubernatorial race that's going to get underway. And 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 let me just draw you guys into this this uh, discussion right now. Uh, we have a governor that most people would say is a moderate, and I I would say that he is a moderate. He's not by any stretch of the imagination as as um, uh, conservative as I and a lot of the people that I hang out with uh, would like him to be. However, I kind of think that Asa was the guy that we needed, and I made this argument, my friends, I've made it on the air, I'll make it on the air again, that we needed to make the transition from 120 to 30 years of uh, Democrat rule to uh, going into Republican rule. That if we had come in and and been uh, the real conservative uh, uh, Republicans, I think it would have caused problems. I don't think people would have been entirely ready for it. Uh, now, uh, here, we got two more years with this governor, and then we got a new governor that we're going to elect, and the two really solid Republicans that are running with Tim Griffin, the lieutenant governor, and then I'm hearing that, that uh, Sarah Sanders is going to run. She's a solid Fairly, I would think, conservative. I'm not as totally sold on her as I am on Tim because Tim has a walk to walk. He's also talk to talk. So uh, both of them will be decidedly more conservative than Asa Hutchinson. Some of the things that Asa has pushed for, I don't think they'll push for. In fact, they may cut back on. So now... After uh, the next election, and, and I, yeah, folks, I'm going to start talking 2022 now, uh, already uh, will change this, uh, this state and really turn it uh, to the right. How do you guys feel about that? Do you think I'm, I'm pretty much on, on par on this one? Well, I mean, I, I you know, look, I uh, have a tremendous amount of respect for Governor Hutchinson. I think he was exactly who he needed uh, in the state when he was elected, I think he is a very thoughtful uh, leader. He's not a knee-jerk reaction type guy, uh, and he can work with people, and he's shown that before. But I think, too, that, you know, I mean, this is a guy that people have to remember. I mean, you have to. You can't just you can look at the last uh, six years and, and say, oh, that's, you know, that's Asa Hutchinson. He's the one that helped build this party in the state. When there wasn't a uh, competitive Republican Party, he ran. He put himself in the arena. He was the conservative. And for people to, I think, continue to believe that or say that he's not a conservative um, is, uh, to me, just just a little um, humorous. Just because, again, he was there in the 80s running against bumpers. You know, he was there running for attorney general in the 90s. He was chair uh, in the 90s of the party, you know, running against – uh, Governor Beebe in 2006. I mean, so he's been around. He's continued to push this party forward. Um, and so I think it was absolutely the right person uh, in 2014 to lead us into this new sort of uh, uh, venture, if you will, this new uh, leadership role for the party. Um, and so I think we've done a lot, of, a lot of good things. And look, you know, do people agree with everything that the governor pushes forward? No, but I think you also have to remember all the things that have been done, uh, including welfare reform, uh, work requirements with SNAP, 
uh, you know, uh, work requirements with um, uh, the Medicaid expansion program, uh, which he's really fought for. Uh, $250 million in clean income tax cuts. I mean, so you go down the list, and, and there's a lot. I know some people may say, well, yes, but this. Um, you got to look at the whole package. Uh, and I think uh, you're right, Dave, to say that he was the right person at the right time. I think we've all benefited from that. Yeah, I, I, it's like I've said, I, I think I've been pretty, uh, you know, straightforward with people that he has taken us to where we want to go. However, in two years, when we have the next election, I think uh, Republicans and some uh, uh, independents are ready now to see things to be drawn back. I mean, uh, state in, uh, the state sales tax and things of that nature and uh, start seeing less money being taken out of people's paychecks, more money left in their paychecks for them to spend it the way they want to. And that goes along with some members of the Republican Party as well. I mean, uh, Doyle and I had a lot, a lot of conversations about should we be letting people who have run as blue uh, for years and years suddenly decide they want to be red. And, 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 be, and, here, and I heard the stories of how decidedly purple that they are. Well, now... Now I'm of the opinion it's time to get away from purple people, uh, eaters out there, so to speak, and getting pure red meat Republicans ready to go here in the state. Yeah. Hey, Dave, one thing I, you know, as we point out, he certainly is the right person for the right time that I would point out is Asa Hutchinson and both his gubernatorial campaigns and particularly the last one, which I can speak to having been a, a very small part of that. Was he has been so great at also incorporating young people. You know, I as political director yep. and Jamie Barker, who you may know as communications director, yep, I know were Jamie. extremely young to be in those positions. And the governor, an incumbent governor, didn't have to take a chance with young people. But he has been so uh, open to hearing um, suggestions from young people in the party. And as we look at, we've only had four Republican governors, Winthrop Rockefeller, Frank White, Mike Huckabee, and Asa Hutchinson. And, and I think they all played such an instrumental part, as you said, into getting us where we are. And the next governor, and, and it will be a Republican, be it Tim Griffin or Leslie Rutledge or Sarah Huckabee Sanders, will be the youngest governor uh, we've had uh, since Bill Clinton and will be the youngest Republican governor at all. And, and I think it will just be, you know, Asa Hutchinson said in his inaugural in 2015, it's a new day in Arkansas. In every election, we, we keep turning the page, and it's a new day once again. And that is around the corner. But it was Asa Hutchinson as the chair of the Republican Party of Arkansas that sued for equal access. We literally have Republican primaries in this state because of lawyer and chairman Asa Hutchinson. And so he's he's been so instrumental. And I, Arkansas is just so blessed, I think, with, with people like Asa Hutchinson, with people like French Hill in Congress and people like John yep. Bozeman in, in the Senate. You know, just really salt of the earth, decent public servants, just decent people. And when you see, once again, what Joyce Elliott did yesterday, you see how rare decency can sometimes be when it's needed most. Uh, it can be a thin veneer. There's no doubt about that, to say the least. We have 14 minutes uh, to the top of the hour. Uh, when we come back, uh, I, I'd like both of you to talk, because both of you, when you stand next to me, are, are young bucks, all right, of the Republican Party. And I want to talk to you about that. And, and, Seth, I can talk to you about how I've been uh, working hard to get young voices on the air to talk about 
how they feel uh, about the party and what they see for the future. And I've done the same thing, I believe, with Jr. and and Jamie Baker and others. So we'll come back and talk about that. We've got to always deal with the now, but we can't take our eyes off the future. And we'll talk about that in a moment here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, with eight minutes left here in this hour, J.R. Davis is uh, with us, as well as uh, Seth uh, Mays is with us. Seth is with the Arkansas GOP, and, uh, of course, J.R. is with the Gilmore Group. And uh, I think that we've covered pretty much that the, the state is even more solid red. Uh, J.R., I'll ask you uh, one more question about the race uh, for District 2. Now that we finally... Uh, won that by 10 points. Do you think we can put to bed the people who say that that district is the district that is uh, our Achilles heel, so to speak, that that's the one that the Democrats can go in if they can find the right candidate? Well, let me tell you, if they if Joyce Elliott or Clark Tucker is not the right candidate, they don't have the right candidate. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mentioned this earlier, um, the fact that so many outside groups, you know, Washington Democratic groups, uh, liberal interest groups poured so much money into this race for Joyce Elliott. And they got an even larger margin of defeat than they did in 2018 when many of them pulled out because they sort of saw the writing on the wall down down the stretch. That's really great for this seat. I don't think you're going to see a lot of these groups, you know, trying to be first in line to put more money into an AR2 race in the future. And that's terrific. Um, And I also think what we saw this year uh, is just the strength of the surrounding counties. Uh, I think there was some thought that what would Celine, what would Faulkner do this time around? How much has it changed in just a couple of years? Uh, And I'm very happy with where both of those counties are. Uh, We saw uh, more turnout, uh, even if slightly, uh, in some of these surrounding counties. Um, but it was more Republican turnout. And I think that's something that, you know, Republicans, sometimes we sort of have this idea that more turnout is bad for our party. And I just never subscribed to that, especially here in Arkansas. I think when there's more turnout, uh, especially the last few cycles, it's been good for the party. And I think we saw that uh, Tuesday night. So um, I feel really good about uh, this seat, uh, have for a long time, but certainly feel good about it moving forward. Uh, and I think as we move into this uh, new decade uh, and we've got redistricting, um, I, I think this is going to be a very safe Republican seat for, for a very long time. All right. Let me uh, – two more issues I'd like to talk to you about. we just got about uh, six minutes remaining. And uh, one is going out and getting the youth involved in the Republican Party. Seth, you've been a, uh, a leader of the college Republicans. Uh, I've had that's when you and I, I, I would get you on to talk about what young people were thinking. I've attended several of those meetings that you all have. Uh, what is the what is the health of the young Republicans and the, the Republicans on college campuses and for the future of the Republican Party? Yeah, I mean, in particular, the young Republicans here in central Arkansas, the college Republicans like at, at UCA, which is where the state chairman, Will Teeter, attends school uh, right now, I, we're absolutely the base of our get out the vote movement that in the north pulaski republican women okay so it, and, and just to be honest 
that tends to be an older age group. So it was really when you looked at folks that would come in and make phone calls, it was such a diverse spectrum of ages and backgrounds from people. I think it even skewed predominantly women as well uh, when we looked across our volunteers. And one thing that I, I remember, I'm always reminded of when we talk about the youth in the Republican Party. I think back to 2018, once a week, a member of all of the campaigns, and there were statewide campaigns for all constitutional offices, uh, a member from each campaign would meet here at the Republican Party headquarters and just go over the next couple weeks of events across the state so that everybody would know, okay, where's the governor going to be? Where's the AG going to be? Where's the lieutenant governor going to be? The congressman? Just to get a good idea of, of the the outlay of the land and to communicate. And I'm telling you, Dave, everybody around that table under the age of 30. Okay. Yeah, that's, and, and that's once again, yeah, it is. Absolutely. And, and once again, our most active volunteers are the young Republicans, um, our young folks. And so I, I'm very encouraged um, when I see that, when you look around the room of, of some people making decisions and they, they're sort of about the same age as you, you know, I, I think that's super encouraging to get young people in and cycle after cycle it, we, it seems like we just keep adding people to this core of hey that person is super reliable and i know there will be people that will come back two years from now to help volunteer that i met this cycle and there were people this cycle that i first met in 2018 and so the ball i think just keeps rolling for young republicans good. particularly here in central arkansas all right makes me feel good last question for you jr you can probably jump in here on this one and you can get into it as well seth we got about two minutes remaining and that is redistricting when is that going to happen when does that process begin and uh, that's what i think joyce elliott is scared of to be honest with you uh is the redistricting that's coming up there's going to be a lot of, of of changes i do believe what do you guys think jr yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, it will gear up uh, as we, you know, uh, turn the page from 2020, uh, you know, get all that census information closed out uh, and finished up. Uh, and then, yeah, then it'll start. Um, I think that there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, I think I think there's going to be a lot of changes. Um, I think there, I, I don't want to say a whole lot. I just think that, you know, it's not going to be anytime you hear Democrats complain about Republicans and gerrymandering in Arkansas. Just remember that it's never happened. Yeah, uh, we've, we've, we've never literally done never it. done. We've never done this before. Um, and so anything, you know, the Fayetteville finger we all remember uh, was very much a, a Democratic idea. That's right. Uh, to literally run up and grab, you know, the most liberal section of the third district and pull it down into the fourth. I mean, you can't get much more gerrymandered uh, than that. Um, so, look, I think the Republicans see this as um, this is a big responsibility. Uh, we want to do it in a way that, we, you know, the voters can trust us. Um, and I think it will be done the right way uh, with a lot of respect around it. So we'll see what happens. It's going to be a long, right. long route there, though. All right, guys, we're out of time. Seth, we'll talk more redistricting next week as uh, we want to hear what you have to say. JR, thank you for joining us today on the Dave Ellswick Show. Interesting discussion, guys, for this last hour. News is next.
six minutes after seven on a Thursday. You want to know who's president? So do I. We'll talk about it later, but there's it's still out there to be decided, and it's going to be that way for a while. So just hang uh, hang tough on that. Joining us, Jeannie Smith. Uh, I have said this in the past. I'll say it again. Uh, Harding University has been joining me about once a month for the last year, and I have learned more about Harding uh, and what they have to offer over this time than I knew uh, that they were offering. I mean, for instance, today, Jeannie is the Assistant Dean for Student Affairs and Admissions at the Harding University College of Pharmacy. I had no idea, uh, Jeannie, that you all had a College of Pharmacy. When I, when I think College of Pharmacy, i got to let you know, I think UMAS uh, over here in, in Little Rock and uh, you all are, are added up there in White County as well. That's right. There are just two colleges of pharmacy in the state, and UAMS is a great program as well. But Harding uh, started our pharmacy program about 10 years ago or so. Wow. So we're up here trucking along and doing our thing up here and serving the rural communities um, in White County and the surrounding area up here in north central Arkansas. That's fantastic. I, I, I told you before we came on, I didn't even knew, know that you had a college of pharmacy. And you said, well, Dave, that's why I come on your show. <laughs> that's <laughs> to right. To let people know that, that, that you, you have a, a college of pharmacy. So uh, bring us up to date on, on the college. What, when you guys put it together, you said about a decade ago, what, what were your object lessons that you had that you wanted to and, – and, and, that you wanted to meet opening up this school? Sure. So, um, of course, like I said earlier, and you mentioned as well, UAMS, uh, before Harding was here with their pharmacy program, UAMS was the only college of pharmacy in the state of Arkansas. And we saw a need to um, add <clears throat> one more program, and so we did that. And um, started with our class sizes hovering around 60 and in those early classes we actually had a good number of students from out of state and so we were pulling students from maryland and california and minnesota and i mean from the south and arkansas and texas as well but we were pulling students from um, all over the country and that was really fun time to have a little bit of diversity in uh, you know rural arkansas and we really enjoyed that quite a bit. Over the years, we've transitioned um, to about 50% of our cl- of each of our classes are, are Arkansas residents, and so that's been really um, good. We've partnered with the Arkansas State Board of Pharmacy over the past couple of years and been able to award several of our students an Arkansas Rural Loan Scholarship that comes from the, the Board of Pharmacy. And the students that get that scholarship are Arkansas residents who are from rural communities, and they're committed to go back and practice pharmacy in those rural communities. So we really like that piece. Yeah, this is really fantastic because if pe- if people haven't listened to the uh, interviews that I've done with the uh, movers and shakers at Harding, they might not know that Harding University is becoming a nationally recognized institution that people want to come to, and uh, it may take another decade, I don't know, but I believe they're going to have the same kind of, of great, uh, you know, 
people are going to know Harding as like being uh, uh, an Ivy League school out here in in central uh, central uh, the United States. Yeah, we're really pushing um, and growing our graduate and professional programs across the university. So we have, you know, a variety of health science programs, of course, pharmacy, um, and a bunch of education, a master and doctorate level programs. So, yeah, they're really pushing that growth. Of course, we've got to keep our undergraduate population up as well, and we love our undergrads here at Harding, um, but really grow in the graduate and professional programs, and that's been a, a lot of, and that's the reason I'm here. I mean, I grew up in Texas. Texas and uh, planned on living my life out in Texas, and here I am in Arkansas uh, teaching and working at Harding. All right. Well, let's talk about a few things. Uh, as far as the uh, College of Pharmacy, how's COVID-19 changed what you all are teaching? Well, what's interesting is just uh, about a week or so, well, it's been a couple of weeks now, actually, um, there's a new federal uh, guideline called the PrEP Act, and pharmacists has been, have been able to give immunizations for quite some time, but uh-huh. the, the PrEP Act coming into um, existence has opened up the freedom of the pharmacist to make the clinical decision to administer a vaccine for any patient starting at age three and older. And so that may not sound like a lot to, you know, to someone who's listening today, but what it, what it was before was each pharmacy or pharmacist had to have a written protocol with the physician that detailed how the vaccine decisions were made and administration and things along those lines. And now pharmacists have more autonomy and more decision decision making uh, ability in that. And the really the great thing about that is through the pandemic, when you know, especially early on when we were in what you know people like to call lockdown, non-essential health care was not open. Lots of you know specialty appointments, things like that, scans that might need to be done, those kinds of you know secondary elective surgeries, those things were shut down. But you know what was still open? Your local pharmacy, and so pharmacists always have been and will continue to be the most accessible healthcare provider in most communities. What is, what does the future hold for pharmacies uh, if we we do in fact get a COVID nineteen <laughs> vaccine? Uh, before the end of the year or the beginning of next year, because I've heard from pharmacists talking about, uh, you know, they, it's going to have to be held at such a cold temperature and things mm-hmm. of that nature. There may be some uh, some problems for local pharmacies to be able to administer the vaccine. What are you hearing and, and what is uh, what is the School of Pharmacy up in Searcy looking at? Yeah, you're right about that. These uh, all the the current COVID vaccines that are, you know, hopefully going to be coming onto the market um, sooner rather than later do require very, very cold storage. And so, you know, when the first news came out, we were hearing, okay, well, this, you know, you're going to have to have these super cold refrigerators and freezers and et cetera. But now what I'm hearing is that at least some of the vaccines can be stored in 
pretty fancy coolers, basically, I'll use layman's terms, with dry ice. And so okay. they'll have to be monitored, and the dry ice has to be switched out and recorded when it's switched out and temperatures monitored and logged and all those kinds of things. But it seems like at least for some of the COVID vaccines that are, again, hopefully going to be available soon, that that will be an option. And so there won't be this huge, hopefully, financial commitment to buy these fancy, fancy freezers on the front end. All right. Jeannie Smith is our guest, uh, Ph.D., Assistant Dean for Student Affairs and Admissions, the Harding University College of Pharmacy. If you're saying they got a school of pharmacy, yeah, they got one, and it's a really good one, and I'm happy to be able to talk to her about it. When we come back, they got some big announcements for the Harding School of Pharmacy. We'll ask her about that. But first, we've got to get to our break because it's a, it's a, a quarter after seven. You know, when I talk about uh, Harding, I'm always amazed at all of the different schools and graduate programs uh, that they're opening. And I'm not kidding you. I, I believe that they're going to be known as the Ivy League of, uh, of Arkansas in the not-too-distant future. They're moving that way as we speak. And, when, and, and that's something I do on my show. I try to bring you all of the people that are doing what they do in the best of their abilities and, uh, you know, blow people away by how good they are at what they do. And that's why I talk about PI roofing. I've used PI roofing for nearly 18 years. Uh, they uh, put um, my latest roof on about, I'm going to say it's been really 8 to 10 years. I, it, You get to be my age, everything is water under the bridge, kind of speaking. But I know that next year I'm looking at getting a new roof and uh, it will be PI Roofing that I will call and ask them to take care of it. Because here's the key. Right now, I know a lot of people talking about COVID-19. They'll keep the social distancing. Uh, you can do everything over the phone or over the Internet. When they show up to work, it's not like they're going to come up to you and engage you in conversation. Uh, if they got to tell you something, they'll, they'll stand uh, a respectable six feet or further from you and give you the information you need to do so your family's protected, their workers are protected because that's a big family for them. PI Roofing's a big family. So they'll do that. But here's the other thing. They'll give you, I believe, the most professional job, the most professional job you can get on your roof. You're not going to have to deal with your insurance company. They'll talk that over with them. They'll get their appraiser on the roof. They'll show them the problems. And uh, the only money I believe you'll be out is the money that you know you should be out, which is your deductible. Get the best job you possibly can get on your roof because the roof is the last uh, line of defense from the elements outside uh, for the inside of your home. Call PI Roofing. Now, I'm going to give you a number. This is the number I use, all right? It's not like the bat phone. It's not like the red phone in the in the White House. Uh, this is the phone number everybody uses to set up to get PI Roofing to come out and work on their home. It's 707-3551. 707-3551, or you can do it all online, piroofing.com. All right, we're back at uh, 721, and our guest is uh, Jeannie uh, Smith, who is the Assistant Dean for Student Affairs and uh, Admissions at Harding University's College of Pharmacy. Uh, Jeannie, you guys just made uh, an important announcement just recently about the Harding School of Pharmacy. Why don't you bring us up uh, on that? 
Yes, we are so excited to announce our curriculum change. And if you know anything about pharmacy schools, you probably understand that most colleges of pharmacy in the country are four-year programs. Yes. That's the common standard. That's the way it's kind of always been done. In the last bit of time, there's been a transition to some schools doing what they call an accelerated program, and that's a three-year program, and it's pretty much straight through, um, pretty intense, relatively expensive because of that um, squeezing everything into three years. But what we're really excited about here at Harding is our announcement about a a three-and-a-half-year program. And so what is so great about that is through the pandemic, we have learned how to offer some of our courses online and do that in a a good way, a a healthy way for our students to learn uh, some basic kinds of information, laying a foundation, and then whenever they come to the classroom in the fall and spring semesters, they've got that foundation laid from the summer that they're going to, the summer work that they're going to be doing, and then ready to kind of hit the ground running. So we're going to utilize a couple of summers, and then... um, move forward into our just kind of what we would think normal fall and spring semesters. And we're looking at not just putting courses into the summer, but we're completely revising the curriculum to make sure that it's streamlined, to make sure that every uh, topic is taught in order, that across each semester in our first, second, and third year students, that the topics they are learning line up. So they're learning about maybe heart failure in their pharmacotherapy course, but they're also learning about heart failure medications in their um, medicinal chemistry and pharmacology courses. So there's that repetition that if, again, if you know much about education, we know that that's helpful for student learning, student engagement, and for ultimate retention of the knowledge. There's a lot of information that a pharmacist needs to know. It's not just, hey, I got a I've got a ticket from a doctor, and I need to fill this up and give it to the patient. Uh, the pharmacist is the last line of defense that the patient has that what he's going to be asked to take is not going to interact with what he's already taking or she is taking, correct? Absolutely. We check drug interactions. We check therapeutic duplication, meaning do I have a patient who's taking two different medicines for reflux? Do they need both of those? The local pharmacist knows what their patient's taking on the -the over-the-counter side of things. Okay, I've got a patient that's got this reflux. Well, they're taking two prescription medications, and I also know that they regularly buy Tums. That's three different medications for heartburn. That's therapeutic duplication. We know that and can help counsel the patient and say, hey, what's going on? Visit with them, refer them to their physician if needed, encourage them in the situation I just gave. Hey, let's cut back on those Tums for a while. Let's see if one or the other of these prescription meds will work better for you. All kinds of things like that. The the local pharmacist knows their patient. They know their families. They know their lifestyle. And they are that last line of defense. And again, the, the most easily accessible healthcare provider in most communities. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, they do a lot of classes dealing with uh, medicine and interactions and chemical interactions and all kinds of things at at pharmacy school. How does this uh, changing of how long uh, the school is going to be to get your degree uh, to become a pharmacist, how long, how much money can that save a student? Well, the cost savings is, is twofold. And so, first of all, it's going to be a tuition savings. And so, instead of paying tuition for four years, it's just paying tuition for three and a half. Of course, that's realized kind of at the back end of the program. And then there's cost savings because the student will be entering the job market earlier. And so our students will be graduating in December in our new program. And most schools of pharmacy in the country graduate in May. And um, we all know that December, January, February is cough, cold, and flu season. And everyone gets sick during that time, even sometimes pharmacists. And so uh-huh. we know that there's a, a bit of a, a an increase in the need for a pharmacist to even if they're just coming in and doing what we call relief work or or, or fill-in work for someone, a pharmacist who's sick. But we also see jobs uh, in that winter period, and our graduates are going to be able to enter the job market, start that earning potential earlier, and so there's cost savings that you can calculate into that as well. All right, that's fantastic. Last couple of questions for you. Uh, You're you're Harding University. Uh, You look at everything from a Christian worldview. I guess that carries over into your school of pharmacy as well. Yes, of course it does. And the Christian worldview, we don't we don't have Bible classes in the College of Pharmacy like they do on the undergraduate side, but we do teach from um, a creation perspective and not an evolution perspective. And so we like to make sure that our students, whenever they're coming to interview with us here at the College of Pharmacy, that they're aware of that. Some people like it. Some people don't care one way or the other, and then others don't. But yeah, that creation perspective that God created us, and we have these medicines, these chemicals to and to learn how to use them correctly to increase our health and wellness and live happy, healthy lives. We do teach from that Christian worldview. We pray with our students. Um, we, we learn who they are. We know their uh, families. We know their pets. Uh, it's fun to um, kind of walk alongside our students here. We have a smaller class size. And the relation part of, uh, of the Christian faith um, and that creation uh, teaching perspective really makes Harding unique. Yeah, that's fantastic. We need more schools that have that kind of Christian worldview, doctor, and I appreciate what Harding is doing for people to get more information. I'm sure you've got a place they can go on the Internet. Yes, absolutely. Our website, harding.edu slash pharmacy. So we've got all kinds of information there about admissions and about our uh, course prerequisites, 64 hours, so the equivalent of about two years of undergraduate work required to uh, get into pharmacy school. We have, uh, we're on some social media outlets, so you can find us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, but you're going to find the most robust best information about our program at harding.edu slash pharmacy. Okay, what's the uh, what's the address for your Facebook? Our Facebook is H U Pharmacy. Okay. 
Harding University Pharmacy, basically, and they can find you there, and then they can just join up and keep up on everything. I suggest that if uh, you're finishing up high school and you're thinking about uh, pharmaceutical training, that you uh, look at... uh, you know, uh, Harding as your undergraduate and your graduate program. Jeannie Smith, Assistant Dean for Student Affairs and Admissions in the College of Pharmacy at Harding, thanks for the time. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you later. Rush is up. All right, remember, today uh, we are into November. It's, you know, we're, we're getting to that point where we're getting close to Thanksgiving And after Thanksgiving, Christmas is not far behind. Now, it's really close, Christmas is. If you're thinking about getting a unique piece of jewelry uh, fashioned from, uh, you know, A and getting it to Z uh, and getting it in a little box and tied up with a bow on top uh, to be giving it to somebody uh, that's a special somebody in your life. And so uh, Eric Coleman wants you to know uh, you need to call now uh, to make sure you're going to have plenty of time to design, well, come up with the ideas for the piece of jewelry, design it, uh, get a 3D replica in wax of it, and then have it made uh, to be given to that special someone, whether that special someone is a wife or, uh, you know, someone that you're going to get married to in the near future, or maybe it's a, a hubby or it's, a, it's you know, a, a, a guy. I mean, guys like jewelry, too, typically rings. Uh, we like bigger, bolder rings as far as that's concerned. Uh, some of us will even wear necklaces. Uh, I got to get with Eric because I want, I want that nails uh, that you can get that look like the old Roman nails fashioned into a cross that I can wear, uh, you know, around my neck uh, here uh, in the near future. So uh, he can do all of this stuff for you. I mean, he is an artist and he is a jeweler. He will save you money. He can get you great deals if you want diamonds. He can get you great deals if you want colored gemstones. He knows all of that. He's a gemologist, but he has, you know, different ways of being able to get those stones that will save you money. And he'll, he's going to, of course, educate you about that kind of stuff, too. Last thing you want to do is to go on the Internet and to buy you diamonds because the Chinese have flooded the Internet with just glass. You don't want to spend a lot of money on what you think is a fantastic diamond and that you got a great deal on and then you find out it's not a diamond at all and that good deal turned out to be no kind of deal at all. Go visit, uh, you know, Eric over at his shop. Uh, He's up there at 3,000. I'm trying to think now. I just dropped off my head. I'll give you the address and the phone number here in, in, in just a moment. And uh, you need to get a hold of him and talk to him and let him show you how he can uh, save you all kinds of, of money. I'm going to Hillcrest right now. There it is. Let me jump on here real quick. And that's Hillcrest Designer Jewelry 3000 Cavanaugh, uh, Suite E here in Little Rock. And their phone number, 501 246 
501-246-3655. Call him, set up an appointment, and get the process underway so you'll have no problem with it being ready for Christmas. All right, about uh, 20 minutes to 8. We got a little more time. That may be an extra minute. Uh, just was uh, notified that Cheryl Chumley will join us in the 6 o'clock hour. You won't want to miss uh, what she has to say because uh, she's got a brand-new book out uh, that I believe that uh, people will be interested in uh, hearing about. I know that uh, you're going to be interested in the title because uh, the new uh, the new book is dealing uh, directly with Christians. It's called Socialists Don't Sleep. Christians Must Rise or America Will Fall. And you've heard me talk about this a lot. Uh, our, our spirituality is really the key and the number one uh, area that uh, we need uh, to keep America, America. So we'll talk about that with, uh, you know, Christian and, and or Cheryl and, and see what she wants to uh, talk about. She's also a licensed investigator. She's a former Army person. I mean, I'm, this lady's got a background that's uh, amazing, and you're going to enjoy hearing her talk. She's really good. She's written uh, quite a few books. She writes right now. She does a twice-weekly podcast uh, for the Washington Times, it's called Bold and Blunt. It's also available on Spotify and Apple and other podcast hosting sites and at the Washington Times. Uh, she's, uh, uh, you know, an editor at the Washington Times. So there's a lot of things to talk about here uh, with her, and we will do so. Uh, expect that we'll talk about a book, but we'll, with her background, we'll also talk about the election. That's coming up at 6.05 tonight here on uh, the Dave Ellswick Show. And she's a, I'm really glad that we got her uh, and that she's going to join us uh, on, the sh- on the show. Okay, so Willie has a comment about the election. We're going to move over now and talk about that. Willie, what's your thoughts here, what you're seeing? Dave, I know the president won that election. Well, I'm not, I'm not agreeing with you. I, I think if, if anybody uh, has just an open mind and looks at what's going on in Michigan, for instance, an election is supposed to be transparent. Uh, you should be able to be able to watch them count the votes. Basically, and and when you have in Detroit where they're doing the counting, they put up uh, paper over the window so the average citizen cannot look in and see the work that they're doing. Uh, when you have a place like uh, Detroit, who said that at the beginning of the election they were expecting 3.1 million mail-in ballots, and it turns out they've gotten close to five and a half million ballots in. Uh, for mail-in, uh, there's there's some things to be questioned there. There, when you go to Philadelphia and you see in Philadelphia uh, that the poll watchers are told they can't come in and watch the polling. That's why what their job is is to check that stuff. Then you go over to Wisconsin and you got uh, Milwaukee where they say that we've counted a hundred percent of the vote, vote, but when they add up the numbers. It's 101%. What the hell's going on? 
Well, I heard in Florida they wouldn't let 15 Republican observers in, in the building to observe the recount. Well, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, nobody's contesting Florida this year because uh, Trump won it overwhelmingly. I mean, when you talk three points in Florida, you're talking hundreds and hundreds of thousands of votes. So, uh, you know, he carried Florida. The question is, are the Democrats going? And this was the question going into the election. Uh, the president, everybody says, oh, he's saying they're going to try to steal the election. No, he knew. He knew what the Democrats were going to do, and they're doing it. The Democrat Party has a history, a history. I lived under it for years when I lived outside of Chicago of stealing elections when people were, uh, you know, conservatives were close in a race. All of a sudden, a couple of boxes of ballots would show up and put the uh, the liberal uh, Democrat over the top. I mean, all you got to do is live under that for a few years, and you understand that it, it is alive and well in the United States. All right. Thanks, Willie. Appreciate your call. Uh, do that. I, and, and for you who, who think, wow, Dave, do you really think that? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And if you want to stop that kind of stuff, uh, you're going to have to be uh, keep yourself well informed of what's going on uh, with this election now, because nefarious stuff can happen uh, when your eyes are blinded to what's going on. Uh, if they're not being uh, transparent, be forewarned and be aware that if they don't want to be transparent, that's that's not a good thing. Uh, the president knew that this might happen. In fact, I believe that he knew it was going to happen. Uh, he's got a full arsenal of attorneys uh, to uh, go and, and challenge this stuff. And by the way, the Biden campaign is going to be out there fighting tooth and nail uh, to, uh, to protect a lot of this nefarious stuff uh, that's, that's going on. That this is happening in the United States on this type of level and that the American people now uh, don't have a president that's elected and 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 we're we're, we're a couple of days into this uh, it may take several weeks to weed through all of this and it all may end up uh, in the Supreme Court now Seth and JR and I talked earlier in the show off the record and uh, during the you know a break uh, about would the Supreme Court hear these? And uh, a lot of us, uh, I won't say who uh, said what they said what, but I think that most of us agree that, uh, you know, the Supreme Court may be a little hesitant to get involved because uh, of the political nature of this, but I don't see how they're going to be able to stay out of it. I really don't. If you see this kind of wanton cheating, the Supreme Court has got to step in. I mean, if you look at what's going on in in, in uh, Pennsylvania and you can't see the problems where they don't, they, if they can't tell about uh, when a postmark is dated, that they got to count the, the ballot. If they don't have a signed uh, affidavit for a, a, a ballot, uh, that they got to count it. I mean, folks, that's just wanton, wide open 
being a ball carrier coming out of the out of the backfield and getting around the corner and looking ahead and seeing nothing but green between you and the end zone. That's all it is. And we'll take it up even more as we go along here on the Dave Ellswick Show on 101.1 FM, The Answer. All right, back with you. So what's going on in Detroit? All right, let's take a look at what's going on in, in Detroit. And let, let's understand that Detroit, uh, can deliver, you know, hundreds of thousands of votes to a candidate. Uh, Hillary Clinton, I think, got over 250,000 votes out of Detroit in 2016. And right now the uh, the numbers are razor thin uh, in the state of Michigan. And so all attention now is on, uh, uh, on Detroit and that the integrity of the electoral process that's going on there is being upheld. Well, windows inside the TCF Center in Detroit were covered up Wednesday, sparking widespread criticism as chaos chaos broke out while ballots were being counted. Now, I have problems with that. I hope you have problems with that. Why would they keep you from being able to see what was going on as they were counting uh, ballots. I mean, at least Philadelphia, of all places, where widespread cheating is known uh, over the years to take place, you can look in and see what's going on there without any problems. Uh, Quote, there were some pretty tense moments inside of this room. This is from Fox News correspondent Matt Finn. He said, basically, some poll workers or some of the challengers told us that there was not an equal number of Democrats and Republicans in the room throughout the entire process. That's one way that you make sure of the integrity of what's going on. You make sure for every Democrat there's a Republican, and a lot of time there's an independent that's included so that they all can be seeing the process of counting the votes. That's very important uh, to, to make sure that... Uh, people know that the counting process is legit. Uh, Finn says it led to some shoving matches or some fighting matches, and that's when police had to step in and escort people out of that absentee ballot counting room. I took these people's claims to the Secretary of State here in Michigan, a spokesman tells us in part. Uh Quote, these are poll challengers who have a legal avenue to address any legitimate concerns regarding any rules they claim were not followed, Finn continued. Now, in the midst of uh, all that chaos, there were windows back here that allowed for observation that were covered up with paper and post boards that led to even more confusion and outrage as uh, protesters pounded on those windows, demanding the ability to see inside. Finn added, quote, I talked to Detroit City Attorney. He tells us he ordered some of the windows to be covered because some of the poll workers nearest the windows were concerned that people were filming them or information on the ballots. Well, here's what you do. You don't cover up the windows. You move those people further from the windows. You don't cover up the windows where people can look in and see what's going on. Uh, Finn later tweeted out the full statement that he got from Tracy Wimmer, director of media relations. And here's what Wimmer said. These are poll challengers 
who have a legal avenue to address any uh, legitimate concerns. Now, let me just stop it right there. How do you know that there's something that you need to address if your ability to see what is going on has been compromised? You can't. You can't. It's that simple. So they said uh, they can address any legitimate concerns regarding any rules they claim were not followed. This has been a bipartisan, open, and transparent process from the beginning with a record number of Republican challengers observing it. The individuals who made these claims to you said they were challengers, which means they have the ability to bring any violation they thought had occurred to the election inspectors. An attorney for the city of Detroit, Lawrence Garcia, tells me he ordered some of the windows be covered because some of the workers nearest the windows felt concerned with people outside potentially filming them or ballots. Not all the windows were blocked. An attorney for the city of Detroit, Lawrence Garcia, tells me he ordered some of the windows be covered because some of the workers nearest the windows felt concerned with people outside potentially filming them or the ballots and that not all the windows were blocked. Now, everybody's saying the exact same thing. That tells me if everybody's story is exactly the same, PowerPoints were passed out to those people. The Detroit News has added both political parties had surpassed the law mandated maximum 134 challengers with more than 200 each. And when election workers told GOP challengers the party had hit its limit, some began shouting about the unfair process and lack of transparency. An unidentified election worker shouted back the group was at maximum size. City, well, what about the Democrats? You're saying the Democrats were over, too. Not hearing anything about the Democrats, right? Hmm. City police officers then locked the doors following the altercation, limiting those who could enter. Challengers then proceeded to knock on the windows and doors, looking into the rooms where ballots were being counted, and election workers covered some of the glass with cardboard and poster board. Uh, Finn, uh, the... Fox News reporter tweeted out a video from inside the facility that showed workers putting up what appeared to be large poster boards. The video instantly went viral, racking up nearly 7 million views on Twitter alone after only 12 hours. The Trump campaign responded to the video by writing, quote, we need more transparency, not less. So uh, there you go. That's that's what's happening in Detroit right now. And Detroit uh, County, I forget what county exactly Detroit City is in now. Starts with a C, I know that. Uh, is uh, looks like to me there's some, some shenanigans going on. And if there's not, they're making it appear that way by what they're doing. And uh, if you're transparent, you don't put up boards so people can't look through the windows to see what you're doing. All right, we're out of time for this hour. Now, you keep it here. We'll we'll keep you in in touch with what's going on, recounts and all the rest. There's going to be a recount in uh, Wisconsin, that's for sure, especially after Milwaukee reported that uh, out of their 100%, there was 101% people counted. Mm, 1%, that's a large number coming out of Milwaukee. 
Okay, a break. Cheryl's up next uh, at the 6 o'clock hour when I'll be back. Enjoy your rest of your day here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. the six o'clock hour on a Thursday evening and we are lucky today. We've got a fantastic gift uh, guest with us right off the bat. Cheryl Chumley is going to be with us. She's a Christian. She's a conservative. She's a writer. She's an author. She's a speaker. She's a veteran. I mean, you talk about somebody who checks all the boxes as far as I'm concerned. This woman does that. Let me give you a little background on her real quickly. An author, a commentary writer, the online opinion editor for the Washington Times, a licensed pre, uh, private investigator, uh, has written several books, and uh, we're going to talk about one of those today that just came out a few weeks back, and uh, I think uh, would be really uh, beneficial to you if you'd pick it up and read it also, especially now that the recounts and all of the uh, legalities are going to happen because of uh, the election. She's been on major news organizations uh, uh, that are out there, uh, you know, tell, trying to tell you what the news is uh, without spin, which is nobody. So we're going to talk to her about all of this uh, that's going on. Her new book is called Socialists Don't Sleep. Christians Must Rise or America Will Fall. And I, I've had this uh, this topic as a, a place to jump off and talk on my show consistently when I have the Bible guys on we talk about this consistency if America doesn't continue to hold on to their moral bearings uh, all is lost I firmly believe that and and Cheryl let's let's talk about because now you, you're talking about socialism doesn't sleep we're seeing socialism at its zenith right now in Michigan, in Wisconsin, uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, we're, we're seeing elections trying to be stolen by the Democrat Party, uh, who now is uh, uh, the Socialist Democrat Party. I, I have no problem in saying that. I think they've proven themselves on that. Uh, what say you on that? Well, thank you, first off, Dave, for having me. I, I really appreciate being on your show and uh, your service to the country, uh, both military and fighting the, the good fight for Christian conservative values. And to answer your question, uh, yes, if you want to know how socialism works and how socialism seeps into America, you look no further than your evening news or out your front door. These leftists in the streets actively seeking to undercut 
a, a law and order election are exactly the types of people and mindsets that you see on display in socialist countries. So, you know, red alert, danger time, America. Socialists don't sleep and they are actively working to undercut American society and cripple our Constitution and bring about uh, a government that is so uh, opposite what founding fathers envisioned. And honestly, what even some moderate Democrats in America would still want these days, never mind Republican versus Democrat, there are moderates in America, even in the Democrat Party, who would be horrified at what these leftists right now are doing to our country if they are allowed to succeed. You know, the only difference between what I see on ABC, NBC, and, and, and CBS anymore is that they're not owned by the government, or if they were, we could call them Pravda. Don't you believe that? Well, yes. I mean, it, you know, the, the media for a long time now has been derelict in its duty. The media, and this is why I went into it, I always thought that journalism was an honorable profession, that if you wanted to get the truth out there, all you had to do was to look to your local journalists, and they would watchdog the issue for you and bring to light the truths that the people need uh, to keep America free. But the media is truly uh, an enemy of freedom, truly an enemy of conservative and Christian ideals. And if you look at the talking points of the Democrat Party and listen to the talking points of the pundits on most of the major media outlets nowadays, they're one and the same, identical. They're making the same fight, and it's for a globalist, collectivist vision of America. Yeah, it's scary. It really, it, it truly is. As a, as a veteran and as somebody who took an oath to the Constitution of the United States, uh, and went to college and studied radio, television, and, and journalism, and political science, I can just tell you, I, I, I look at what's going on, and I just don't, um, I don't believe what I'm seeing. I know it's happening, but it, it is hard for me to, to rein it in and, and believe that it's really happening in my lifetime. I've always thought that they wanted to do it, but now they're doing it while I'm still alive, and that really bothers me. And, and here's why, and this leads into exactly why I wrote this book. We haven't, as a nation, and we certainly haven't um, as Christians, as a Christian community, we haven't discerned and acted upon the dangers of socialism. We're pretty good at reacting to the socialism when it comes with a big capital S, you know, banging the socialist gong. We're pretty good at reacting to when an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gets elected to Congress, right? There's the enemy. There's the face of the enemy. But what we've been reluctant to act upon for various reasons, which I do go into in my book, is the seeds of socialism as as they creep, as they sneak into America's society and culture and politics and economy. We haven't been good at, at, at seeing these and calling them out for what they are and fighting them. And this is what, where Christians are uniquely positioned to be able to make this battle, because we are trained in biblical principles first, right, God's Word, which is aligned with what our nation was built upon. So we should be easy, easily able to identify, to discern when things go astray from that in society. So th th this is the big fight, not waiting until 
the socialism is there in public office, but rooting out the socialism before it digs in, into the ground and, and grows and spreads throughout America. You know, if you're as lucky as I am to live in a state that's red and is getting redder uh, as we speak here in Arkansas, uh, you can look out and you watch Michigan and California, New York, and a lot of the other blue states, and uh, you look at that, and, and, and I've always said that the Democrats are not the party of God. I mean, they took that out. They tried hard to get it out of their platform a few years ago with Obama, and we all have seen that video of them voting on whether God should be in their platform or not. They're not in the platform here in Arkansas with God. And uh, you, you look at that kind of stuff, and you go, that should be a warning signal. And then when you look at blue states that are saying casinos can be open but churches can't, that should send a, a, a really clear message to people who are believers. Uh, I agree with you. Um, and the coronavirus is kind of a 12-hour wake-up call because a lot of this stuff has been happening for decades. We just oh, have yeah. not called it socialism. We we haven't made the fight. We've allowed it to happen for whatever reason. Uh, it, I mean, Christians are just like any other people. They want their kids to have a better life, life than they did. And so perhaps as a Christian community, we've become a little bit complacent on fighting political battles and more concerned about growing our 401ks or our college funds or buying bigger homes, bigger cars, uh, vacation rentals, that kind of thing. But we can't afford to do that any longer. We can't afford to let go these political battles and sit out the cultural fights because what's happening is the next generation that's coming up, they buy all all accounts, by all polling accounts, they are embracing socialism over capitalism as a valid form of government and economy for America. And once you have the younger generation, that's it. it where is America going to go? Where are free-loving Americans going to go when the younger generation takes over in politics and culture and the economy and brings about a socialist system and completely cripples America from the inside. It's not like we can just go to the voting booths and elect someone else because there won't be anyone else. The younger generation will have been trained in the propaganda ways of Marxists and communists. And this is what is taking place in our public school systems. And even though a lot of us have uh, have our children in private schools or Christian schools or home schools, that's great for, for our families. But as a nation, that, that's not so great for the nation. So I think we need to uh, not do this uh, thing that they teach so much in, in, in some churches that to be of this world and, and to be in this world, but not of this world. And that gives an excuse to avoid the political world. I think we need to get a little bit more involved in the political world because look what's happening to our country. Well, I, I totally agree with you there, because let me tell you, economic systems have cultural results. I mean, that's something people better be aware of. Uh, if you're a capitalist, uh, for the most part, unless you're a corporatist, uh, you believe in freedom. You believe in open markets. You believe in uh, a free dissemination of information and for people to, to understand what's going on in their country and things like that. If you're a socialist, your whole goal is to put the rest, if you're, you 
to become one of the elite and put everybody else under your thumb. And if you're a communist, God forbid, it's that your view of the uh, of the government and your economic system is to take everything that everybody else has. That, that's it. Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, that's exactly what the end game is for the left. And they will mask it and cloak it and use soft and warm and fuzzy uh, rhetoric to disguise it. But the end game of the left, and when I say the left, I'm including the entire Democrat Party, even some of the ones in the Democrat Party who say they are more moderate and unaware of this, it doesn't matter. They're part of the system. The whole left's goal right now is collectivism and 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 to cripple the entire idea of individualism in America, which goes against founding father visions for this country, the, the core greatest asset we have being that our rights as individuals come from God, not government. So the left needs to remove God from that equation and make it our rights coming from government, which puts government in total control of everything. So the way to fight this, the way to counter this, of course, is for more of us in the know to speak out about the need for God to be the leader of American society and put government in its subservient role. Once we do that battle, because that is the war, that, you know, all these other things are little, little battles, little skirmishes, but the big war is to keep God at the helm of America. And once we do that, all this other stuff will naturally fall into place. All right. Cheryl's got a new book out called Socialists Don't Sleep, Christians Must Rise or America Will Fall. Uh, it's out and uh, easily attainable, you know, Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, and all your normal places to go on the uh, Internet as well. I highly recommend that you spend some time educating yourself and listen closely to the Spirit because the Spirit's going to say you can't let this stand. We'll talk further with her when we return here on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. We got one more segment with uh, Cheryl uh, Trumley, who is a Christian, a veteran. She is a conservative. She is a writer, an author, a speaker, and uh, she's involved in the war. I'm just there is a war in this country. It's been going on for a long time uh, here in America. In fact, I remember a, a few elections ago. Uh, when uh, people wanted to speak at one of the Republican conventions and they were being told, don't bring up the, you know, the, the culture wars. Uh, no, people don't want to hear about that. Well, let me tell you what, whether you want to hear about it or not, it's here. It's happening. Uh, they're slowly eroding away uh, your rights. And as Franklin said, by the way, and, and Cheryl, I'll tell you, I'd like to hear what you have to say about this. Uh, as I've watched because of COVID-19, how easily Americans have given up many of their rights, uh, it scares me. It scares me immediately that uh, uh, once you give up rights, you don't get them back. And, uh, you know, some of our founding fathers said things that those who want a little security and they'll give up some freedoms for it, in the end won't have either. Franklin said that. And we are there right now. What do you think, Cheryl? Oh, yeah, we're, we're deep in the midst. We're right in the thick of it. And I've written critically for months now about the, this entire 
coronavirus chaotic system that we have allowed um, the, mostly the health bureaucrats and uh, the leftist politicians to create for us. You know, back back in the in the early days of the coronavirus, we didn't know what it was about. That's right. But it wasn't it, it wasn't long. It, honestly, it really wasn't long before it became apparent that computer modeling, if you consider the entire notion of computer modeling, it's skewed. And the predictions that health bureaucrats were making in the er, in the first week, by the second week, they were already proven to be completely wrong. And and by tens of thousands of um, numbers, statistics wrong. And then you start looking behind the scenes and you see that hospitals were uh, incentivized by Congress and congressional stimulus dollars to inflate coronavirus cases. Where at the same time they were prevented from making money in other, uh, you know, elective surgeries by executive order uh, loving governors in certain states. So if you start looking beyond the scenes, the whole coronavirus thing stunk very early on, and yet. Churches closed. Churches closed based on executive orders from uh, Christian uh, hostile to Christianity governors and from local bureaucrats who had no duly passed laws to stand upon. It was just their orders. And I understand that church leaders were concerned about the health of their congregations. But here in America, our rights come from God, again, not government. And so we should be the ones in position to make those decisions. We should be the ones to say and take personal responsibility and say, well, for my own health, I'm going to stay home from church, watch online, or I'm, I choose to go to church. But we had that the that whole decision-making process stripped by the government. And for churches to close based on government orders, not not even based on sound science or, uh, or you know, duly passed laws, just an order. It, it's remarkable to me. It's, it's a dark time for America. And if that's not a wake-up call for the Christian community, you know what? Nothing is. Absolutely nothing will be. And so let's learn a lesson now. And I'm, I've been very happy to see that there have been some pastors in recent uh, months even who have banded together and said no more. We will never close, and we are going to stand up to any government that tells us to close yeah look at john MacArthur out in california yes. i mean yes i mean here's a guy who's really standing up has been a teacher and a preacher for years uh has one of the most listened to uh, christian teaching programs on faith radio and uh, he starts standing against newsom out in california and what happens well the government comes in and says you know this large area over here that you use as a parking lot and you have for a long long time we're taking that away from you see this is the government taking off the the velvet glove and just bringing the iron fist against people it's a government being run by satan you know the bible teaches that it's a spiritual battle we're fighting right so look at the spirit that is is bringing about these clampdowns is it a spirit of truth or is it a spirit of fear 
is it a mm. spirit of, of of godly virtue or is it a spirit of deception and distraction and uh, you know outright hostility toward individualism toward what this nation was built upon toward christian beliefs i mean let, let's use a little discernment here and when we see that the truth is that it's a spirit of of demonic forces that is much more at play with some of this stuff that's happening with the coronavirus with the election uh, debacle that we're now facing with a lot of stuff that's going on in politics let's fight back let's not just say well yeah i see that um that that's wrong and that's a spirit of satan and, and then go about our business yeah. let's stand up and fight back right i'm with <laughs> you 100 percent. you and i are are right on together about what we're thinking about i've been telling everybody that uh one of the number one commands 365 days uh, times 365 days once for every day uh, with the, the you know the calendar that we have now the Bible says fear not because as soon as you start fearing you become an atheist you don't believe God is in control well I believe my God is in control he's bigger than anything that can come against me and I fear not I fear not to fight right the fight that's right got to yeah Yep, you you can't have fear and faith at the same time, right? I, I mean, I one, one prevails. All right, I'm with you. So the book, Socialists Don't Sleep, Christians Must Rise or America Will Fall, uh, I've got about uh, 30 seconds here. I'm going to tell people to go to you know Amazon.com or any other of the locations. They can go to your website, in fact, uh, and uh, pre-order the book now as well off your website, correct? Yes, CherylChumley.com. It's on there, along with all the endorsements, all the nice things people say about it, so, which yeah. we're very thankful for. Yeah, well, don't, don't cross them. No. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> Believe me, I know that. All right. Thanks, Cheryl. I'm going to let you go, and uh, we'll be in touch with you and have you back on here on the Dave Ellswick Show. A break and then more on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, back here on the Dave Ellswick Show, and uh, I'm first hour I had J.R. Davis on along with uh, uh, Seth Mays. And, you know, there's a lot of things going on about uh, the presidential race. We all know that. The big thing that came out of Tuesday is we held the Senate. So that gives us a firewall. It's like seeing a raging forest fire going on, and you can build a fire break. And our fire break now is the United States Senate. We are going to uh, continue to control uh, the Senate, and that's a that's a big win. But there's a lot of things to take out of the um, election Tuesday uh, that are specifically uh, about uh, Arkansas. There's some really Im- impressive things that happened. First of all, uh, there was a, a feeling uh, that uh, that Joyce Elliott going up against uh, uh, French Hill. Uh, for District 2 Congress uh, person uh, was going to be uh, a way for the Democrats to finally wrest that back uh, from, uh, the, uh, from the Republicans uh, since Vic Snyder left office and Tim Griffin won uh, the race. Uh, that has not happened as we've gone along. It has not happened uh, since then, it has not happened yet. Uh, you know, Joyce Elliott ran back in 2010 and lost. 
uh, their next uh, person that they thought that they had that could uh, take it over was Clark Tucker. Uh, a couple of years ago, he took a drubbing. And then, uh, again, Joyce Elliott was uh, brought up again thinking that this was her time in a presidential election when you had a, a large amount of people that uh, did not like the president, that they would turn out and that their votes would be enough to put uh, uh, Joyce Elliott over the top. And she lost by 10 points. So uh, that is uh, an amazing story in and of itself. It shows that I believe that District 2 now is solidly red and that uh, it's going to be very hard to, uh, to switch it, you know, barring somebody who is, uh, you know, out there running for office and got has got all kinds of ethical issues or something like that. Unless that happens, uh, the, the district should be in Republican control uh, for, you know, as long as I'm still alive. Uh, if it ever changes, I do believe it will be when I'm, uh, as I like to say, taking a dirt nap. So, uh, that's something to keep in mind. Uh, they did, uh, the, as we talked about, the Democrats wanted to wrest the supermajority control of the Republicans uh, from the Senate or from the House and then keep it from happening in the Senate. And they failed at that as well. We picked up uh, a couple more Senate seats. Uh, we picked up a few more uh, 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 state House seats. And so at this time, supermajorities in both houses, along with a Republican governor, and it will be that way at least for two more years. So uh, it will be interesting to see how it all uh, works out here in the near future. Uh, does that mean that we will see uh, conservative uh, you know, uh, legislation? I think we'll see more of it, uh, but I do believe uh, that there's still uh, the possibility of the, the, the elected officials who are um, more worried about people loving us than people liking what we're doing to uh, be out there and govern. Uh, the, the whole thing that I had with issue one, which passed, and we have voted in a half sales tax into our Constitution now, ad infinitum, uh, in, which is a terrible thing as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, I could have maybe been coaxed, you know, coaxed to, to vote it for a half cent sales tax if you didn't put it in the Constitution. That is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, what you need to do is have people who are willing to govern make the necessary decisions and uh, be able to make the necessary funds available to not only build highways, but to repair highways. And uh, that means you're going to have to go back and look at things like, uh, you know, RDOT, is that the way we want to do it? Uh, did we want to make it as we have now a... Uh, a separate governing body, legislative body, or did we want our legislators to be the people involved in helping to make those decisions? They're not now. That that half percent goes to 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 RDOT no matter what, and that's a that's two hundred and something million dollars every 
year now. You look out on the horizon, yeah, it goes past the horizon. That's what that does, unless somebody can get another uh, uh, issue on the uh, the ballot and uh, people are willing to change it, and that will be some really heavy lifting and uh, there's some, there's going to have to be things that happen that make it difficult. So we're going to uh, to make it plausible. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Uh, but we're, you know, the governing thing is where this comes in. You know, I think when you look at how much money is taken from the average Arkansan that makes a you know middle of the road salary. And those uh, above, I mean, you can't look at the people at the bottom. They don't pay uh, taxes much at the very bottom. Uh, the the thing that you you got to understand is that you have to govern, not continue to tax people. Uh, when businesses decide on what state they want to come to and build their their businesses or expand their businesses, they're looking at the tax burden. And Arkansas right now, I don't know where the extra half percent will place us. It might put us at number one. But right now, we're number two in the United States for sales tax. That's that's not good. That's not good. That that does not make businesses want to come to Arkansas. That does not mean that uh, job expansion will happen. Uh, yeah, I know that it, a lot of people... Uh, praise Governor Hutchinson about about uh, job expansion. But look at what it took to get people to come here to expand the job market. I mean, how many tax breaks did that business get? All right, where if you just took care of your tax code and uh, governed the way you should be governing about taxes, you wouldn't have to worry about that. People would want to come to Arkansas and to have their businesses. You know, when you do uh, a Google search and look at Arkansas and what states that you want to go to uh, when you retire, Arkansas is not in the top 25 because taxes are so high. I mean, I'm glad that we uh, gave some people a break uh, if, uh, you know, they're military and uh, they got a break on their taxes on that. But at what cost? We, we gave them a break and gave them more money uh, from, from their uh, retirement. But in the same breath, we went out and raised taxes on other people. That's not legislating. That's just taxing. Taxing is the easy way to do things. Governing is tough because you got to get people on board together to pull in the same direction. You know, when I was when I was trying to do uh, go into fraternity, and I was in college, uh, we used to do a thing called rollouts, and that would they'd wake you up in the middle of the night, and they would take you out, and they would, I you know, yell at you and scream at you, kind of like uh, basic training. And then, uh, you know, they would have you do something. And typically what they had you do, if you looked at it a little deeper, it was to teach you some elemental truths. For instance, the first rollout that you went on was called the rope walk. 
And uh, the rope walk is a very simple thing. What they did is they had all of the uh, pledges have their uh, ankles tied together by a rope. But what they did is they took the rope and they tied it to their right ankles. And then the next person, it was, ta- it was tied to their left ankle. And they went back and forth that way. So to be able to walk without, without falling over, getting all tangled up and falling over, you all had to walk left, right, left, right together. And if you did that, you, you did fine. If you didn't, you ended up on the ground. And in fact, you had to march through a, a, a mud puddle. And uh, the first time you did it, 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 took a lot, it took a while to get people to understand what you were trying to do. And once they understood, then they all marched forward in unison and you didn't fall in the mud. That was after you'd already fallen in the mud several other times. And it was typically chilly at night. And uh, you got cold and you got muddy, you got dirty. And uh, then you went back to your dorm and you went took a shower and whatnot and then passed out into your bed, went to sleep. But the bottom line was it taught an elemental lesson. Same thing has to happen in politics. Look, if, if you're part of, let's say, the Republican Party, everybody, got to, has, got, everybody has got to walk in unison. And typically, you've got to have one person who takes charge. You've got to have the person who calls out the cadence. In this case, in the military, if you've ever served in the military, you know, you always had your drill instructor. He's walking beside you as you're marching, and he's saying things like, give me a left, a right, a left, give me a left, a right, a left, and you walked. When he said left, everybody's stepping forward left, everybody's stepping right when he's saying right, and uh, you get that great uh, working together and uh, visual, in fact, for the people who come to watch cadets march and things of that nature, uh, the movement of those legs together, the same distance and whatnot, it's a beautiful sight. It really is a beautiful sight. But it only happens if everybody works together. And we need that type of, uh, you know, people in our political system that can work together and govern, not just tax. Tax allows you to walk in any which way you want to. Uh, walking in unison is to govern together and to have a leader that can lead you to govern together and not just to tax. I mean, that's, I hope, you know, that's about as clear as I can kind of make it and uh, the way that I would like to see it happen on a more regular basis because when you look at highways, what's a good way to govern it? Go in and take the money you already have because you've got a lot of money. You've got billion dollars or so, billion and a half, three billion, I don't know. Uh, it's like $25 billion were passed through money from the government. But the bottom line, you've got enough money there that you can take care of the uh, roads. Dedicate the amount of money it's going to take to fix them and to construct them. It's what you've got to do. And if you'll do that, uh, things will be much better. And taxes can go down. They can they can go down. Uh, does it mean that you might have to make some tough decisions? Yeah, 
You might have to make some tough decisions. That's what governing's all about. That's what having a person calling the cadence is all about, is being able to make those tough decisions. All right, uh, we need to take a break. I was just wondering about that, and Heidi just let me know. Break, Dave, so we'll do that. We got one more segment coming up here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Stick with me. Got some more things to talk about, about good things that happened Tuesday night for the state of Arkansas and the Republican Party. All right, so here we are in the final segment today of the Dave Ellswick Show. Let me just give you a little heads up that tomorrow I hope to have some newly elected state senators on in my first hour. Uh, Don't hold me to it because I haven't gotten there okay yet, but I know they're going to be here in in Little Rock, and I believe I can get them to call in and uh, and talk to me during the first hour. Robert Steinbach and Chris Corbett uh, will be with us at 7 o'clock until 8.30. We'll talk about all things politics. Will we talk about the election? Well, duh. Of course we will. And uh, we'll talk about what we're talking about a little bit here in this last segment about uh, Arkansas and what the elections did for Arkansas. Uh, With that in mind, uh, let you know that in the final half hour, Matt Smith, as he usually does, will join us. And there's some new movies that are coming out. There's a new one coming out with Kevin Cosner uh, that looks pretty good with Diane Lane uh, that I am going for sure to go see. It's a drama about, uh, if I can pick up from the trailers, about some grandparents that want to see uh, their grandson and the, the, the parents of one of the, uh, I don't, not their child, but of uh, their child's spouse is not allowing them to see uh, their grandchild. And it's a, it's a huge issue uh, that's going on in America even today, and uh, that movie's going to deal with it. So I'm looking forward to going to see it. So I'll talk to Matt about it tomorrow. All right, so with that all said, uh, let's get into this final uh, segment and what happened in Arkansas. Well, we, we picked up uh, a couple of Senate seats uh, down south, and it was, it's, I mean, big, a big deal. It really, really was uh, a big deal about what happened uh, in in uh, southern Arkansas. So uh, I bring this up. You got uh, uh, a Republican by name of uh, Charles Beckham, uh, who is re- uh, who ran. Who I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know if he even thought that he could overtake uh, the uh, people that were supporting the person who was there already, and that was Bruce Malik. Uh, and uh, he did. And Charles Beckham uh, won the election down there in uh, uh, southern Arkansas in a very blue area. Uh, and then uh, Ben Gilmore won his Senate race uh, down in uh, a very blue area in southern Arkansas, too. We made some really uh, big roads in uh, the Delta and that has been a tough place uh, for Republicans to make inroads at. The uh, Democratic Party has uh, been firmly ensconced uh, down there, and it, it's taken us over a decade uh, to start making some real movements in the local 
uh, races down there. When I talk local, I'm talking state representative, uh, state senator, those those types of, of races. And uh, those have been hard. I mean, we, we've made some really inroads when you talk about uh, things like, uh, you know, con- congressional offices. I mean, we've had a solid uh, Republican congressional contingent uh, over the last uh, six years. Uh, I mean, Rick Crawford up in District 1, he wasn't even challenged this last election. That's how strong he is up in District 1. Uh, You know, Womack won again. He's been there for a while up in District number 3. When you look at uh, District 4, Westerman won and won big, big numbers for him. So that's a great thing as well. So uh, he was able to take uh, the 4th District again. And, you know, many of those state uh, House uh, members and senators that are in blue districts have a red uh, congressman and a red senator. Bozeman and Cotton both are, uh, of course, Republicans. Cotton reelected. Uh, this last election as well. Democrats didn't even have anybody to run against him. Well, they did, but he had some real uh, challenged issues as far as that was concerned. Uh, All our constitutional offices are still red, and uh, there'll be more challenge on that in in another two years uh, because uh, some of the people that are Holding those offices are either running for other offices or have termed out. They will have served eight years and they can't serve anymore. Treasury Department, AG, uh, of course, uh, two just off top of my head. Governor, the third off top of my head, that you'll be electing new people to those uh, positions. Uh, But the bench is deep on the Republican side. And so... uh, uh, you'll have, I believe, a good candidate to choose from in the primary from those offices to decide who's going to carry or be the standard bearer uh, for the Republican Party here in Arkansas. Uh, the uh, the Democrats in this last election tried to break our supermajority in the House and keep us from getting a supermajority in the Senate. They failed. Uh, we have a supermajority in the state house. We have a supermajority now in the state Senate. We have the governor, and like I said, all the constitutional offices are also uh, in uh, in the red. Uh, I would like to see some changes made, perhaps, uh, in uh, the bureaucrats uh, who are the head of some of the uh, committees. Uh, you know, and uh, you know the uh, the gov- for the state not talking about committees in the state senate or state house talk about the ones that are the head of uh, you know the, the department of health and things of that nature and make sure they are firmly set with smaller government and less taxation as well that music means i'm out of time i still got a lot more to talk about but heidi i'll i'll follow what you're telling me and i'll shut up Be with me tomorrow on Friday. We'll start it again at 6 a.m., hoping to have two new Republican state senators on with me when we return at 6 a.m. to the Dave Ellswick Show.